0: The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. God created everything good and creation is really an emanation of His glory. right? Uh, It's not a word we use a lot often, emanation. (laughs) I had to actually look it up. But it's a good word because it's like what the sun does. The sun emanates or radiates light. And creation is really an emanation of God's glory. It is good in that it reflects his glory. And he put man in the middle of creation as a display of his glory and goodness to glorify God and also in the garden context to enjoy God. Right, to be in relationship with God, to connect with Him. And that was how God made the world. But we all know that didn't last long, and um, sin wrecked it all. Uh, but before sin, God also created a partner for man uh, to share life together enjoy community together as equals, right? But sin comes along, and it changes everything. So now instead of glorifying God... Man is seeking to be like God. Right? Instead of reflecting God's glory, all of a sudden man wants to be God and take glory for himself. Uh, no longer are they able to enjoy intimate communion with God in the garden. They are now kicked out of the garden and separated from God. And finally, it severely damages human relationships with each other. Okay, Adam and Eve now feel shame. They feel nakedness. They are no longer comfortable with each other. And they feel the need to hide from each other and to hide from God. And uh, throughout the rest of Genesis, the effects of sin unfold for us. And as I said, the things that get repeated uh, are instructive for us. And uh, like father, like son, that sin nature gets passed on from generation to generation. And man no longer glorifies God, does not enjoy fellowship with Him. And we find human beings in constant competition with each other. Right? And that's it's significant. And throughout the book of Genesis, we see man competing with each other. So sin is a problem. And sin creates all kinds of personal, devastating consequences for us. But it also creates consequences for mankind as a whole, for society. And one of the things that we see over and over in the book of Genesis is this spirit of competition. So right off the bat, what happens with Cain and Abel? There's what? Jealousy. There's a sense of competition. Who can have the best sacrifice? My sacrifice is better than your sacrifice. Right? And Cain kills Abel right? because he's jealous and he doesn't like the competition. Fast forward to the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob scenario, cycles. Um, New characters, but same old story. There's this underlying current of jealousy through all three of these stories. The Abraham cycle, the uh, Isaac cycle, and the Jacob cycle. Uh, With the Abraham story, we see it. um, There's competition between Sarah and Hagar, right? Uh, They're jealous of each other. And uh, Hagar has children, Sarah doesn't, and Sarah is incredibly jealous. Then uh, Sarah finally has a child, has Isaac, and uh, there's jealousy between Ishmael and Isaac, right? And so Ishmael gets kicked out. Um, Then Isaac grows up, gets married, uh, has twin sons, Jacob and Esau, right? And what happens with Jacob and Esau? Loving, caring brothers, right? Who support, take care of each other, right? Just pray for each other every day, right? No, there's competition. There's conflict. Okay, there's sibling rivalry before they even get out of the womb, right? There's sibling rivalry. And in the end, Jacob ends up fleeing for his life because Esau wants to do what? He wants to kill his brother because of the fierce competition, sibling rivalry, right? Well, finally, after 20 years go by, they heal and repair their relationship. Uh, and Jacob is restored to his land and his family. And now we start a new cycle, the Jacob cycle. And uh, in the book of Genesis, it's broken out into 10 sections. Uh, each one begins with the phrase, the generation of. All right? We're in the last one, chapter seven, 37 starts the last, the generation of, and it's the generation of Jacob. And Jacob has 12 sons, who just love each other to death. Well, the to death part is right, (laughs) even though the loving part isn't, right? Um, And what's behind all this? Well, it's significant and it's important for us because this theme that runs through the book of Genesis tells us that this is a lot about the very core of what it means to be a human being, right? Fallen in sinfulness. This pattern, this tendency to be in strife with our brothers and sisters, even within families, is so much a part of what it means to be a human being that we really need to pay attention to this, right? Because it really drives a lot of our life. Um, And it comes down, I think, really to a matter of where our identity lies. I titled this message, Identity Crisis, because we are in many ways all living with a huge identity crisis. And I think it works like this. Our identity is basically how we view ourselves in comparison to something, right? Um, Basically, in comparison to each other. But it didn't start out that way in the garden. That wasn't God's original purpose or intention. Uh, At creation, before the fall, if you were to ask Adam and Eve, who are you and what, what gives your life worth, okay? How do you think they would answer? If you were to ask Adam, who are you and what gives you worth as a human being? I think he would have answered something like this. He would have said, well, I am, I am a being created by God, made in his image. I think that was his identity. That's what Genesis 2, chapter 2 tells us. He says he was created by God as, as really the pinnacle of all of God's good creation. Okay, so he wasn't in competition with creation because all of creation was good, was perfect was a display of God's goodness. And he said, you know, I am really the pinnacle of that creation as one bearing the image of God. In other words, I was made to reflect and shine God's glory. That's what it means to be an image bearer. It means a lot of other things, but at its base, it means that we reflect, we bear God's glory. So there's no competition in that because I know that I am created by God, and I radiate His glory, right? Um, and and in rela- so in relation to God, I'm created by Him, bearing His glory. In relation to, or comparison to creation, he would have said, I am ruler, okay? Not because I'm better, uh, not because I'm more important, but because I am appointed by God to be ruler, to be a steward of all God has created, right? So that was his identity, but after the fall, notice how it changes. Now the image of God is blurred and soiled by sin. So no longer is man radiating God's glory. Sin has damaged that, has broken that. So no longer do we feel uh, you know, confident as image bearers. No longer do we have an identity of somebody radiating the glory and magnificence of God. Instead, sin makes us painfully aware Of our brokenness, of our flaws, of our mistakes, of our inadequacy before God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we're aware of that, right? So no longer do we stand confidently in that place as image bearers. Uh, No longer do we accept our place as merely created beings, right? We don't want to be just creatures created by God. Now we want to assume the role of God. And no longer are we now stewards of creation, but we are really users of creation, using it for our own ends, not stewarding it, but taking over in ways that God did not intend. And so we've lost our identity. So we need to form a new identity. Well, how do we do that? Well, we can't compare ourselves to God, because that's broken. Uh, we, we, We don't compare ourselves to creation. So what do we compare ourselves with? Well, with each other, right? And now my identity is based on how do I rate and rank compared to the rest of you, right? And that's really how our identity gets formed. So uh, what happens, I, you know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they all have children. And these little children from very early on do what? Well, they look at who they are in comparison to their siblings, Right? Who does dad love best? Right? And that becomes my identity. Right? And if, if dad loves Esau better than me, what do I do? Like I lie, cheat, and steal, and connive to, to take from my dad what he won't freely give me. Right? Or as in the story we're about to see, I just kill off the competition. Right? Because my identity is based on how I compare to every person around me, right? Uh, It's not true just in Genesis. It's true for absolutely every one of us. Every one of us are born with this need to be somebody. And we've been handed a system that says, you form who you are based on how you compare with those around you, right? So we send kids off to school, and what do we do? We rank them, right? Best in the class, worst in the class, right? And every kid knows where they fall in the ranking, right? Um, I had the wonderful privilege and joy in in Bible college of being the second, see, this is the, I know the rank, the second worst preacher in my preaching class, right? And I thought, and talk about identity crisis, oh my goodness, sure, I thought I was going to be a preacher. I went to Bible school to be a preacher, and I turned out being the second worst preacher in this whole class, of, like 25 preachers, right? It's an identity crisis. Uh, we play sports, right? And every, every fourth grade boy knows how this works. You know, you all line up, and the teacher picks the two best athletes, and he makes them team captains. And then what do they do? They pick teams, right? And the worst thing that can happen is when you get picked after, you know, all the girls, okay. which was me also, right? Uh, and what does that do to your identity? I mean, it, it tells you, I don't rate very well, right? I'm nobody. I have no worth, right? Um, well, that kind of sets some, some backdrop to what's going on, I think, through the book of Genesis. And, and uh, when we come to the story in chapter 37, these dynamics are, are, are at play, among these brothers, right? Who are evaluating, who are trying to find their identity by how they rate. Who does dad love most? How do I rate with my other siblings, right? What gives me worth and value as a human being? So let's read what happens in chapter 37. So Jacob settled again in the land of Canaan where his father had lived as a foreigner. Okay, that ends the, the cycle before so Jacob had just gone through his own sibling rivalry with his own brother, 20-year journey, took him all the way up to the north. Um, God worked in his life through it all. comes back, finally restores his relationship with his brother Esau, and they bury their father Isaac together. But now it starts all over again. It says, this is the account of the generations of Jacob. Okay, This is the last cycle, the last story. When, when Joseph was 17 years old, he often tended his father's flocks. He worked for his half-brothers, the sons of his father's wives, Villa and Zilpah. But Joseph was a tattletale and told his father everything bad that they were doing. Okay? Jacob loved Joseph because he was a tattletale, apparently, more than any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. So one day Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph, a beautiful robe. Right. But his brothers hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest of them. They could not say one kind word to him. Okay, see the civil arriving. Okay, can you imagine how this would feel? Right. Who does dad love the best? Well, there's no question, right? Kids know. And you make a special coat. All right? it's, it's a neon sign that says, Favorite son, favorite son, favorite son. The rest of you are losers. This is my favorite son. Okay. In case there's any question, Joseph is the favorite son. Okay. There's no question. One night, Joseph had a dream. And when he told his brothers about it, they hated him more than ever. Listen to this dream, he said. We were out in the field tying up bundles of grain. Suddenly, my bundle stood up And your bundles all gathered around and bowed low before mine. Okay, now you're having an identity crisis, and your brother tells you this dream. What do you think about your brother? Okay, I mean this is jerk of jerks, you know. Um, But that's not all. He has another dream. Uh, Well, first his brothers respond. So you think you will be our king? Do you? Do you actually think you will reign over us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and the way he talked about them. Soon Joseph had yet another dream, and again he told his brothers about it. Listen, I've had another dream. The sun, moon, and eleven stars bowed low before me. This time he told the dream to his father as well as to his brothers, but his father scolded him. What kind of dream is that, he said. Will your mother and, I, um, and your brothers actually come and bow to the ground before you? But while his brothers were jealous of Joseph, his father wonders what the dreams meant. Soon after this, Joseph's brothers went to pasture their flocks at Shechem. When they had been gone for some time, Jacob said to Joseph, Your brothers are pasturing the sheep at Shechem. Get ready, and I will send you to them. I am ready, said Joseph. "Uh, uh, Go and see how your brothers and the flocks are getting along, Jacob said. Then come back and bring a report to me. So Jacob sent him on his way, and Joseph traveled from Shechem to Shechem from their home in the valley of Hebron. When he arrived there, a man from the area noticed him wandering around the countryside. What are you looking for? he asked. I'm looking for my brothers, Joseph replied. Do you know where they are, where they are pasturing the sheep? Yes, the man told him. They have moved on from here. But I heard them say, let's go on to Dothan. So Joseph followed his brothers to Dothan, and he found them there. Um, sibling rivalry. Well, first of all, let me give you three three good reasons to hate your brother. Okay, three good reasons to hate your brother. First of all, he's a tattletale. Okay, nobody likes a tattletale. Joseph was a tattletale. It says he made a habit of telling his dad everything his brothers did wrong. Right? Uh, what felt you know him called or pointed to this very special role we don't know um, but he was kind of a trippy little brother and if you remember the kind of birth order Joseph would have been the second to youngest the only one younger would have been his little brother Benjamin so here's little brother ratting on his older brothers every, everything they do right uh, what is their response to that well they don't like it right uh, it it causes friction second thing Uh, Be your dad's favorite. Okay? Now this is kind of a tough one because there's actually nothing that Joseph did other than just be born uh, to the right mom, right? Uh, Nothing he had any control over. Nothing any of the other brothers had control over. But for whatever reason, uh, Jacob loved Joseph above all his other sons. And we actually know from the preceding series of stories that, that perhaps Jacob not only just loved Joseph more, but maybe actually didn't really love his other sons all that much. Uh, Bila and uh, you know, his, his, his second wives, uh, Leah herself was not loved. Uh, the Bible tells us he didn't really love Leah, he loved Rachel. All the other wives and all the other children that came with them were kind of second-class citizens, right? All the kids know this, right? They know they don't measure up. But Joseph clearly stands out. And uh, to, to highlight the point, uh, Jacob makes in this coat. Uh, some translations say coat of many colors. Uh, the word's kind of a difficult word to translate. They don't know what it means. It could be richly ornamented. It could mean it had long sleeves. Um, the point is, it was a special robe. No one else got one. Right? Uh, Joseph is clearly singled out. And it's clear to everyone that he's favored and somewhat spoiled by his father. Right? Uh, it builds resentment. Uh, and they hate him, it says, because of it. Finally, uh, he has these dreams. All right? uh, in Old Testament times, dreams like this would, were, were considered to be from God. Okay, now, if you have a dream, if I, if I told you what my dreams were last night, none of you would say, well, I think you had a vision from God. Right. But in those days when you had dreams, especially when they were repeated like this, they were thought to have divine origin. Right? So not only does apparently Jacob favor Joseph, but now it looks like God does as well. Right? And what is their response to these dreams? Well, they hate him. Okay. They hate him partly because of the dreams, but it also says they hate him because of his words. In other words, not only were the dreams a problem, but the way Joseph reported them was a problem. Okay? Uh, Joseph has some part in all of this. Right? He too is seeking his own identity. Right? And he's kind of relishing his role as the father's favorite child. And he is rubbing it in everybody else's face. Right? There is a certain arrogance and pride about what he's doing. Right? That he had the dream is one thing. But he tells it as another, the way he tells it is yet another. And he's rubbing it in their face, you know. He's gloating. Right? He's, he's telling it with too much joy, right. And everybody's clear on the interpretation of this dream, right. And it says they, that they hated him. It says they were jealous. And the word jealous, actually, in Hebrew is a word stronger than hate, right. Uh, it, it means you know, they hated him, they hated him more, and finally they hated him so much they wanted to just get rid of him right? um, and honestly and humanly speaking, they had good reasons to hate their brother right? Sinful fallen creatures were struggling for their own identity. dealing with a brother like this okay is just a bad mix, a bad mix right. Um, we all need a sense of counting, right? And when you are surrounded and and you find yourself in a situation where you are quite unjustly being overlooked, mistreated, ignored, not loved, uh, it deeply wounds our identity, right? Uh, That's why it is so important for us as, as mothers and fathers to really love our children but even the most perfect parents fall short of this, okay, but Jacob was no perfect parent, by any means right uh, and the ironic thing is that he had experienced this as a child, you know uh, he had experienced this as a child he had been the child that his father didn't love, and I can just picture Jacob, you know, as a young man saying, I am not going to grow up to be like my father right? have you ever said that? I'm, I'm going to do it different than my father. I am not going to be like my father. And yet what happens? He turns out to be exactly like his father. He does exactly what his father did. Right? It's kind of a law of human nature. Uh, we can tell ourselves, we can determine that we are not going to be like our parents, but the reality is we will be like our parents, okay? apart from the intervening grace of God. Uh, my, my own dad had a violent temper When I was a boy, the the thing I I, I feared my dad, and I vowed, when I grew up, I'm not going to be angry and out of control like my dad is. By the time I was 20, I was every bit as out of control and angry as my dad, probably, probably more so. Violent temper, violent temper. And only by the grace of God and his work in my life has he dealt with that in my life. But I became every bit like my father. Uh... It's the way sin nature works, right? So we inherit this, we inherit this identity crisis, right? None of us can say, well, I'm just going to outsmart it, you know. I'm just going to fix it. I'm going to have an identity that that works. The reality is, much like these boys, we all are born into a world in which our identity is under attack. And the things that we would turn to to make us feel good about ourselves will always fall short for us. Right? Our parents will fail us. We will not get picked first on the baseball team. We'll get picked first on the baseball team, and we'll blow the winning run to to win the team the season. And then we're we'll hated even worse. Right? Sometimes being successful is even worse. Right? Uh, we will not always win. We will not always be the best. There will always be somebody better. And when our identity is based on how we compare to others, we're always in trouble. Right? And it has devastating consequences. You know, If it's just a matter of our own self-esteem, it wouldn't be such a big deal. But the reality is, this has huge consequences for all of us for everyday life. Right? Uh, this is the consequences as it unfolds in this story. Reading on in verse 18, when Joseph's brothers saw him coming, they recognized him in the distance. So, so they're out. remember, they're out to, to give some of the geography. Hebron is about 20 miles south of Jerusalem. Shechem is about 20 miles north. And they've gone to Dothan, which is another 14 to 20 miles north of that. So they're now about 60 miles away from home. And they've, uh, uh, Jacob has sent Joseph to go find him, so he's wandering through the Judean hills farther and farther north. And finally he pops over a ridge and they see him coming. And guess what he's wearing, okay? Well, he's wearing his coat. He's wearing his coat that says, I'm better than everybody else, okay? See, there's no, there's no pride or arrogance in Joseph. And his, his, I think his coat must be battery-charged because, you know, from a long ways off, it's glowing in the dark, flashing. Here comes Joseph, the favorite son, right? Can't miss it. <laughs> They saw him coming. They recognized him in the distance. As he approached, they made their plans to kill him. Here comes the dreamer, they said. Come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns. We can tell our father a wild animal has eaten him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Okay, what do you do when... And here's the deal. You know, his brothers realized that in this competition of brotherhood they did not stand a chance, right? They're born to the wrong mom, and you can't change that, right? Uh, There's nothing they can do about their birth. There's nothing they can do about Joseph's birth. And they realize there's nothing they can do to elevate their status. This is a competition they know they can't win. When you know you can't win, when you know you can't beat the competition, what do you do? Well, you find a way to eliminate the competition, right? To them, that's their only option, right? We've got to elevate ourselves, and the only way to do that is to get rid of our brother. And this is how strong this is. I mean, they are going to kill, they want to kill their brother. This is how much this affects who we are as human beings. Um, But when Reuben heard of their schemes, he came to Joseph's rescue. Now, who's Reuben? He's the oldest son, right? He's the firstborn son. Now, if if any of the brothers has a shot in this game, this competition of who's the best, it's the firstborn son, right? Because the firstborn son has special status. But what's the job of the firstborn son? Well, it's to be the big brother, right? To take care of the, the little brothers, right? So his one shot here is to rescue his little brother. That would definitely elevate his status in the game, right? So he's not about to let his little brother be killed. He says, let's not kill him. Why should we shed blood? Uh, let's just throw him into this empty cistern here in the wilderness. Then he'll die without our laying a hand on him. But really, Reuben was secretly planning to go back and rescue Joseph and return him to his father. Right? So in this game of competition, you have, you have several options. One is to eliminate the competition if you think you can't win, or to outshine the competition by one-upping them. And that's pretty much Reuben's ploy here. He's going to one-up the competition by showing his dad that he's, he's a good firstborn son, he's going to take care of his little brothers, he's going to meet his father's expectations. So when Joseph arrived, his brothers ripped off the beautiful robe he was wearing. Then they grabbed him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty and there was no water in it. Then just as they were sitting down to eat, okay, now I love this, okay. So here comes Joseph, he's bringing lunch, uh, goodies from home, right, They strip the robe off. They take the food. They throw them in the cistern. And here's how bad these guys feel about what they're doing. They sit down and eat lunch. (laughs) Okay? In fact, they have a a victory celebration. Woo! We got rid of Joseph. Okay? Let's party. Um, And they're sitting there eating. And just then, lo and behold, comes a caravan of camels in the distance coming toward them. A group of Ishmaelite traders taking a load of gum, balm, and aromatic resin from Gilead in the north down to Egypt. Okay, one of the things in the story that we're not going to talk about a lot because it will come out later, but is the sovereign hand of God at work here. Uh, They just happened to move from Shechem to Dothan. Dothan just happens to be a major trade route between Gilead and Egypt. Had Had Joseph caught up with his brothers in Shechem... Okay, these camel t- trains wouldn't have been going by, right? God's hand is behind us, see? Uh, they just happened to look up and see this train just at the right time, okay? If it had come an hour earlier, a day earlier, it would not have been good for Joseph. <clears throat> but God has a plan, right? So it just so happens they come by, they see him, and Judah, okay, who, who we need to pay attention to. In this cycle of stories... The key players are Jacob, Judah, and Joseph, right? And Judah plays into the story as it unfolds later on. So pay attention to Judah. Notice what Judah says. What will we gain by killing our brother? What will we profit, okay? We're not going to get anything out of this deal, he says. His blood would just give us a guilty conscience, okay? If we kill him, we'll just feel bad. Okay, just feel the sympathy here. These guys are just dripping with compassion. Um, Instead... Let's just sell him. Okay? We can make money off our brother. I like this idea. And so does all the others. Uh, I, after all, I love this. After all, he's our brother, our own flesh and blood. <laughs> okay, These guys are great. I mean, these guys are just real winners, right? Um, and his brothers agreed. So when the Ishmaelites came by, they, uh, uh, Joseph's brothers pulled him out of the system and sold him to them for 20 pieces of silver. And the traitors took him to Egypt. Sometime later, Reuben returned to get Joseph out of the sister. And when he discovered that Joseph was missing, he tore his clothes in grief. And he said, What will become of me? What will I do now? Okay, in this game of competition, Ju- Judah wins. Okay, Judah wins this game. Uh, he eliminates the brother. He elevates his standing among the other brothers because, because he's just made them all richer, right? 20, 20 pieces of silver between now 10 brothers because Joseph's gone. Reuben wasn't in on the deal, so a couple shekels each, that's, good, that's a good day's work for selling your brother. Uh, a year's wages would have been, for a shepherd, a year's wages would have been eight shekels, okay, so, right, you know, pieces of silver. So 20 pieces of silver divided, that's not bad, okay, that's not bad. Uh, The loser in this story... Well, of course, Joseph is a loser. uh, But he's not really... We we don't hear anything out of Joseph. We don't really... He's just kind of a victim. Uh, Reuben's really the loser here because he just lost his shot, right, as the elder brother protecting. uh, He lost it, right? And he says, what am I going to do now? We say, oh, it's easy. No sweat. We just take his robe, we tear it, we dip it in blood... We send it to dad, we'll let him figure it out. That's what they do. And dad sees the robe, and what does he say? He says, this is my... uh, He tears his robe. He says, it is my son's robe. A wild animal must have eaten him. Clearly he has been torn to pieces, and he cries out, Joseph, Joseph. And he grieves for his son, and he mourns deeply for his son for a long time. His family all tried to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. I will go to the grave mourning for my son, he said, and then he would weep. Uh, What is the result or the consequence of living our life based on an identity of comparing ourselves with others? Well, in the end, it comes down to brokenness and grief. That's what this story tells us. And that's what real life tells us as well. When we base who we are in comparison with others, there will always be winners and there will always be losers. One day you win, but you don't win every day. Sooner or later, everybody loses. And in fact, later on in the story, Judah wins this round. Down the road, Judah doesn't fare so well. In fact, next chapter, (laughs) Judah doesn't fare so well. Right? When you base your identity on how well you can perform in comparison to others, on how well you can do in comparison to others, the end result will always be grief and brokenness, loss, right? And the sad thing is, the really sad thing in this story is these brothers have have really gained nothing, right? Because at the bottom of all this, what they really wanted is just to be loved by their dad. By killing... Or getting rid of joseph does their dad love them more now does their dad say oh well joseph's gone well who'd like to take his place (laughs) is that what dad says no right doesn't work that way joseph uh, jacob loved joseph and the loss of joseph doesn't take away that love it just fills it with grief so now jacob has no more to give to his sons than he did before right and they're really in the same boat they were always in. It ends in brokenness and grief and loss. Um, <clears throat> well, the story goes on, and of course we're not going to look at the rest of the story in Genesis today. We'll pick up the story as it goes on. But let me just fast forward a bit to the New Testament uh, and talk about uh, where our identity should lie. Uh, Genesis tells us that we all share with, with, with Judah, with Reuben, with Simeon, and Levi, and Issachar, and all the other brothers. We share the same identity crisis they did. Right? We are all looking to be somebody. And most often we're looking to do it at the expense of somebody else. That's the human sin nature in us. But that's certainly not God's plan. Uh, and how can we, as people who follow Christ, reshape our identity? Well, I think first of all is we need to recognize uh, that inherently we do look for identity in the wrong place. It's important, first of all, just to be aware of this, to, to be conscious of the fact that we are creatures bent on uh, basically winning our good identity at somebody else's expense, uh, even as Christians, okay, even as people in Christ. You know, uh, as a pastor, as somebody you know, who's supposed to be spiritual, who gets paid to be spiritual? No, I don't know if that works that way. Uh, certainly somebody who wants to be godly. I'm amazed how often I feel this deep sense of competition with other pastors, with other churches, you know, uh, for years one of the things, one of the most stru- things I've struggled with uh, as a pastor is when people come to me and say, you know, your your church really doesn't cut it for me. I'm going to a different church, you know. And you know what it does It takes me back to my preaching class. See, I am the second worst preacher, not only in my class but in the whole world, right? It's my identity, just right. And, and, and you know, there's a part of me that knows we're all the church and that we all work together, and we're all the body of Christ, and there's a part of me in my head that says, yeah, that's true. But there's a part of my identity that just feels this deep pain when I feel like I'm losing the competition, right? With other churches, with other Christians, with other organizations, with other ministries, of all things, you know? It's so much a part of who we are. We've got we to be aware of it, first of all, and own up to it and say, you know, it's true that in me I'm trying to be somebody special and important by what I can do to be better than somebody else. Right? How much is that a motivation for ministry? Because I can't answer that for you. But I wonder sometimes as I look around how much ministry is being done a people trying to be somebody, to prove themselves, to prove they're better than somebody else, right? In the name of serving God, it was just in Rome. This is amazing. We were in Rome a couple days ago, last place we, before we came here, and we went to St. Peter's Basilica, and it is it is mind-boggling how humongous this church is, right? It's seven hundred feet long. I think you could easily put easily put a hundred of this room in it and it would swallow it up okay it is huge massive and it's i don't know how many feet high and it is it is everywhere you look filled with incredibly beautiful stone marble uh, statues and sculptures by the greatest artists in the world right do you know why saint peter's was built as I'm walking through that, I'm thinking, you know, God is worthy of a place like this. He is worthy of a structure like this, and I'm, 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 I'm hoping, I'm praying, God, I pray this was to your glory. But do you know really why St. Peter's was built? There was a pope. I don't, I don't remember which one. I got them all confused because I read about a lot of them. But there was a pope who uh, was coming to the end of his life, and you know what he was worried about? he was worried about how spectacular his grave would be. He wanted to have a grave fitting of a pope that was more spectacular and beautiful than all the other popes' graves. Um, And at that time, St. Peter's was an old church that had been built during the time of Constantine and was falling down and in disrepair, and he got this brilliant idea. He says, you know what? I'm going to build the greatest, most spectacular church ever, for my burial site. Right? And that was the beginning of St. Peter's Basilica. And it took 120 years and about 12 popes to build it. And all 12 popes, guess what? Made it bigger and better for their own burial site. Right? And you walk through this place, and you know you, you, when you walk through it and you come out of it, you don't walk out saying, wow, God is amazing. You walk out going, "Well, there's a lot of dead popes here. <laughs> right? And there are, all right? some good ones. Okay, I'm not saying all of them are bad. Some good. Ones, uh, the tomb of Gregory the Great is there. A great man of God. Okay. Um. And it, but but you walk through the scene, you see what it is. Is this great competition to see you can have the biggest, most spectacular burial site, right? um, All in the name of God. All in the name of God. That's not where our identity should be. And that's not why Jesus died on the cross. Let me leave you just with three three scriptures that I hope give us a different frame of reference for where our identity should be. The first one, we ought to have clearly an identity as image bearers. Jesus died on the cross to restore to us and to remake in us a uh, people who bear God's image, right? That ought to be number one, our identity. That we radiate not our own glory, but we radiate the glory of God through the grace of Christ that has worked in us, that has wiped out sin, that has made us new creatures in Christ, and that we, again, as, as in the first day of creation, have now the capacity to radiate the glory of Christ. Uh, Jesus prays for this in John chapter 17. And uh, he prays for his own life, that his own life would give glory to God. And then later on in verse 20, he says, I'm I'm praying not only for these disciples, these twelve, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one. He's praying for us just as you and I are one as you are in me father and I in you. Okay. Those words when you when you see what's happening in Genesis, those words ought to have incredible significance. Cuz what's not happening in Genesis, well people being one, right? That is so shattered by sin that all you see is is fighting and competition and strife. Jesus says, "I pray that my church would be one." Right? That they would have a oneness, a unity just as I I as the Son, as in the Father, and the Father is in me. May they be in us so that the world will see that you sent me. And then notice what he says. He says in verse 22, I have given them the glory you gave me. I have given them the glory you gave me. Right? What is the glory that the Father gave the Son? Well, ultimately, it was, his, it was, his, it was a Father's love for his only begotten Son. Right? For his favorite son, um, when, when Jesus is baptized, remember the dove comes out of heaven, what does God say? He says, "Behold, my dearly loved son in whom I take great joy. Okay, that's the glory that the Father gave to the son. Right? That's that what every child that's what these, these 12 brothers long for from their father, that their father would say, "Here, my dearly loved son." I take great joy and pride in you. Okay, boy, that doesn't bolster your identity, right? And Jesus says, that's the identity I have. I have this identity that the Father loves me and delights in me. And I am His joy, right? And He says, you know what? I'm giving you that glory that... That you would know the Father's love as a dearly loved son, as a dearly loved child. That ought to be the absolute foundation of our identity. That when we say, who am I and what am I worth, we say, I am a child of God and I am loved as a dearly loved child by the God of the universe. I'll tell you, if you know that, nothing else matters. Okay, I could be the worst preacher in the world, maybe I am the worst preacher in the world. It doesn't really matter. Because I am loved by God the Father immensely. Right? And it really doesn't matter how I compare with anybody else. The God of the universe says to me, you are my dear little child. I take great joy and pride in you. Right? That's the first thing. Um, second thing uh, is to really understand Jesus' great work of reconciliation. First uh, Corinthians, I'm sorry, no, Ephesians chapter 2 Uh, Paul writes this, um, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in, 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 uh, in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby destroying the hostility. Okay, the work of the gospel is ultimately the work of reconciliation. Right? Jesus did not die on the cross simply for, to solve your personal sin problem. He does that. But that's not the end of it. Okay, G- Genesis tells us that the biggest problems are not just your personal sin problem. It is a problem. Okay? For me, it's a huge problem. But it's not the only problem. The problem is the damaging effects of sin in community, in relationship with each other. It says Jesus died to break down the walls of hostility to make us one. Okay, the work of the gospel in our life ought to be the work of reconciling broken relationships. Right? The more we understand what Jesus did on the cross, the more we walk and live in it, the more healing should come and we should have an identity based on our community relationship right too much of our identity especially as westerners is an isolation individualistic identity God didn't create us that way he created Adam and Eve in the garden to be partners to share life together right we need to have an identity that's based in community relationship with other people reconciled together through Christ Thirdly, lastly, uh, you know, so much of our identity is performance-based, right? And there's a sense that we get our identity by what we do. But the solution is not to stop doing anything, okay? Uh, That's not what the Bible teaches. Uh, And in fact, Galatians, uh, well, Ephesians 2.10 says this, uh, we, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And then in Galatians 6 it says this, Pay careful attention to your own work, for then you will get the satisfaction of a job well done, and you won't need to compare yourself to anyone else. Okay? What does that mean? That means part of our identity comes from getting satisfaction out of our work because it's given to us by God. So in other words, what I'm saying is we don't work to compete with other people. We work to to satisfy to serve and to find satisfaction in service. Right? Um, so that we don't do anything. We we serve, we work, we do things, right? But we do it to find joy in God. Right? That should be our identity. I, I, I find joy in serving and in giving and doing for God, right? not to prove myself better than somebody else. Right? Let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth. Thank